This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Enterprise Biz Bites. My name is Rich Bradbury. It is Tuesday, the 28th of November, 12.06 here in the studio. And it is, of course, Tech Tuesday. I'll be joined in just a moment by Matt Armitage from Culture Pop, where we'll be going through some of the more interesting, some of the, I don't know, more important tech stories over the last few days. Uh, we're kicking off in just a moment with the story, of course, about uh, OpenAI and the sacking of the CEO. We're just just going to kind of backtrack a little bit, have a bit of a timeline about that, find out exactly where we sit right now within that story. Um, then we have a little bit about how that particular CEO could be having some kind of second coming. And some people are a bit worried about an AI apocalypse, looking into a three-day work week, uh, something else coming up a little bit later on, something to do with Gmail accounts, maybe some phishing, and uh, a generative AI world. Now, welcome to the show, Matt. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. I'm standing in front of my spaceport waiting for the future to happen. I do see that you have changed your background on your video calling that thingy. How did you manage to do that? What have you been using for that? What have I been using? Uh, this is just the, the temporal node that I exist in. Th this is the this, real thing, is it? This is the real thing, yeah. I'm, I'm beaming back to the past. It's... If uh, going around a, a, a bit of a loop around the space. If the only people at home could see what I'm seeing right now. It's quite spectacular where you are right there. Anyway, on that note, if you want to get in touch with our show this afternoon, of course, you can get us via our U-Mobile WhatsApp number. It is 018-789-8899. Of course, you can get us on X. We are at BFM Radio. So then, Matt, before we kick off with this whole um palaver of open AI and the, the Sam Altman thing. How much of this had you been following before we get into it? Uh, I mean, I've been following at a, a distance. It's one of those things you wake up every morning and something new's happened. Uh, he's been, you know, he's been sacked. Uh, then uh, the new CEO is uh, revolting to try mm. and bring him back with the interim CEO. So the interim CEO is shifted. I'll let you go through all of the, the yeah. timeline, but it's uh, I mean, genuinely, this is something that you couldn't make up. Yeah, yeah. If it was, you know, if it was a piece of fiction uh, put together as a TV show, people would reject it saying that it's unrealistic and something like this couldn't happen. It would be uh, too farcical and, uh, and nonsensical for people to kind of uh, relate to. Yeah. But, you know, this is reality in in. 2023. And and we have to remember that the people in charge of, of this are the people that could be, t be potentially pushing us into the future and could be control controlling the way that many of us live in the future. Uh, absolutely. I mean, this is, uh, this kind of plays to uh, other ideas and something that um, I might explore a little bit mm. on. That's blamed uh, this week, which is this idea that in the future, we may not be ruled by governments. We may be ruled by corporations because mm. you you see what's kind of playing out here, and the the number of uh, uh, Silicon Valley visionaries who've kind of you know teamed up on either side of this. Well, I mean, there's not really two sides. There's just Sam Altman's yeah, side. Yeah, everyone's kind of piling in on on his side here. Politicians have been sort of very hands off. They haven't issued comments, which is fine. Yeah, yeah. you know, this is a, a a private company, uh, or well, uh, you know, uh, it's not a government entity. So why should they be uh, 
commenting. Mm. But at the same time, we're seeing actions like the uh, US executive order on mm. AI. So it does seem a little bit strange that so many politicians, especially in the US, are taking a, a neutral stance mm. on something that could have such consequences. Mm. Being ruled by corporations, that sounds like something from a 2000 AD comic book from when I was a child. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's pretty much the the plot of uh, Snowpiercer yeah. uh, as well. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. let's quickly rewind um, by, I think, what, 11 days, I think. Uh, on the 17th of November, the board of directors of OpenAI uh, shocked the tech world by firing uh, then CEO and Open. AI founder, Sam Altman. Soon after that, Greg Brockman, the uh, former OpenAI president and co-founder, quit the startup, of course, and uh, Mira Marathi, the company's chief tech officer, was appointed as the interim CEO at the time. With me so far. Now, Altman's departure follows a reported deliberative review process by the board, which concluded that he was not consistently candid in his communications with them, hindering the board's ability to exercise its responsibilities, which is the official reason, they said, that they no longer had confidence in his ability to continue leading OpenAI. Right. On that same day that the news broke out approximately two, uh, two weeks ago, reports said that distraught employees quote-unquote, streamed out of the headquarters in San Francisco shortly after the decision was announced internally. Then, on the 19th of November, which is two days later, Sam Altman and Greg Brockman were reportedly in talks to rejoin OpenAI, but it fell through late on that day. Instead, in another shocking piece of news, it was confirmed on the 20th that ex-Twitch boss Emmett Shear will become the new interim boss of the company that developed ChatGPT. Now, within hours after his appointment, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella wrote on X and confirmed that Microsoft has hired Sam Altman and Greg Brockman together with other colleagues to lead a team conducting artificial intelligence research. Complicated so far. Keep up, keep up with us. Then, on the 21st, nearly all of OpenAI's employees have threatened to quit and follow out the leader Sam Altman to work at the company's biggest investor, Microsoft, uh, unless the current board resides. Which, of course, left the future of the high-profile artificial intelligence startup that created ChatGPT to be increasingly uncertain. More than 700 of the AI's firm, roughly 770 employees, signed a letter addressed to the board stating that the signatories are unable to work for or with people that lack competence, judgment and care for our mission and employees. However, late last week, it was revealed that Sam Altman will return as CEO of OpenAI and former President Greg Brockman, who quit in protest of Altman's firing. Uh, he'll be making his return as well. Now, just a bit of context. Microsoft owns 49% of OpenAI, but has no direct influence over its board or its directors. They've invested $13 billion in OpenAI. Since 2019, Microsoft and the tech startup OpenAI have worked together to build AI systems that they believe could be the most important tech innovations in a generation. The four-person board of directors consists of OpenAI chief scientist Ilya Sutskva, independent directors Quora CEO Adam D'Angelo, technology entrepreneur Tasha McCauley, and Georgetown Center for Security and Emerging Technologies Helen Toner. That's where we are. That's brought us to the end of things right now. Like you say, Matt, it, it just reads like something out of a manga, out of a gossip magazine. 
Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, I don't even know where to start. Which part do you want me to start with? <laughs> Let's start with the whole um, Twitch. Let's talk about Twitch, actually, Emmett from Twitch. Okay. Now, um, he doesn't seem to be, in, in my mind, the most ideal person to put in as an interim CEO. No, but uh, apparently they went through quite a number of candidates first, the majority of whom uh, turned down the job. So they asked people from rival companies uh, or, you know, competitors in the in the same space. Mm. And uh, there was a, a kind of an instant no response. And uh, I think even with uh, Emmett Shear, uh, he has questioned uh, publicly the reasons for his appointment yeah. and for the expulsion of of some altman mm. so all of this as you said is extremely messy mm. now um let's just have a little bit of a follow-up then so just before we take a quick break of course because just reading that has boggled my mind uh, trying i was trying to write down the timeline earlier on this week and I was having to surf through so many different websites and look at so many different sources just to make sure that I had it somewhat accurate. Now, it seems that um, with the five days of chaos at OpenAI, it revealed a bunch of weaknesses, of course, in the company's self-governance. And, of course, that worries people who believe that AI poses this existential risk and proponents of AI regulations. So this leadership shakeup... Um, it, it kind of highlights these challenges of AI companies and spark discussions about the need for pu stronger public oversight. And we've spoken about this multiple times. Now, his dual role as a both a, a vocal advocate for AI risk mitigation and the head of a for-profit AI company raised questions about conflicts of interest and accountability, right? Right. But what you've... Uh opened up, as you said, uh, just quickly before we go into the break, is actually the biggest question about uh, <laughs> OpenAI, um, because OpenAI's uh, operations are divided into separate segments. Yes. Now, I don't fully understand uh, the the uh, structure and uh, machinations of this. So the board that we're talking about actually sits on the not-for-profit side yes, yes. of the organization. So they have a very simple mandate, which is to create AI for the betterment of all society. Yep. The part that Microsoft has invested in is the for-profit side of the business, yes. which, of course, has uh, contracts with the not-for-profit side. Now, uh, part of the sort of background to all of this have been discussions about um, Altman and Brockman pursuing uh, the for-profit side of the business. And in fact, uh, one of the reports I read said that uh, uh, when um, Sam Altman was uh, busy talking with chip makers about uh, uh, developing new AI chips, it's actually unclear whether he was there on behalf of OpenAI or on behalf of uh, other businesses that mm. he's involved with, because he is involved with other businesses as well. Of course. So there have been um, uh, some comments that the structure of OpenAI between its commercial and not-for-profit operations actually hides uh, a lot of what uh, Altman and Brockman do. Now, mm -hmm. whether or not that's true, I'm, I'm not sure. But it shields them from a lot of scrutiny because mm. the core operations of the company, that's not the company that the investors are investing mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, there's there's a lot of grey area here, but there's also uh, speculation that this shakeup on the board could lead to Microsoft being given uh, a seat on the not-for-profit side of the board as well. And again, is that uh, is that within keeping of the original charter of the company? Should uh, the largest commercial investor of the company come in on the not-for-profit side? Uh, or given the amount of money that they have invested, is it essential that they come in on right. there? So there are so many questions around this opaque structure of the company mm -hmm. itself that is fueling this kind of instability and all of this, you know, nonsense that we've seen in the media over the last sort of couple of weeks. A skeptic in me says, how would you turn a non-profit into a profit company? Uh, but more on that, perhaps a little bit later on. We do have to take a break, otherwise we're going to be sat here talking about Sam Altman for the rest of the show, and we can't really do that because we have more stuff to get through. Uh, oh, yeah, we're going to be touching on a little bit of Elon Musk later on, Matt. I know you're going to enjoy that, right? Well, I know you want to go into the break, but there's also an Elon Musk component to this story because... Uh, go on, no, there's, let's hear uh, it. Let's do it. Come on. Yeah, so he posted on Twitter, I think, a, a, cup, uh, a week or so ago... Uh, an open letter from former employees who have been uh, suggesting malfeasance. I think they put it up on GitHub uh, initially, but go and look at Musk's uh, post on that. There is a, a, a web archive uh, post of that, that original post. So there's all sorts of strange things going on in the, the background to all of this. Nonsense, Matt. Nonsense, I tell you. Right. Let's take a short break. Folks, if you have any comments on this story or any of the others that we'll be covering in just a few minutes, get us on our U-Mobile WhatsApp number 018-789-8899. We're going to take a short break. We've got some ads and some music. We'll be right back here on BFM 89.9. Bloggers for Malaysia. BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, the business station. Uh, green day there, of course, when I come around. Uh, welcome back, Matt Armitage to Enterprise BizBytes. Thank you for sticking around. I'm not going anywhere. I didn't have anywhere to go. The spaceport's not operational for another 2,000 years. Well, I thought you'd be like hopping off to like Jupiter or somewhere or, you know, somewhere a little bit further afield. But No, no. once you've been once, you, you don't go back. All right. And, uh, you forgot your coat, did you? Is that, we're a bit chilly over there. Uh, indigestion, it's a gas giant. Very good. Well done. Uh, now, um, we should probably get back to what we're talking about, really, and, and get back to reality just for a second. Although this story makes me think that perhaps it's not entirely real. And, and it's about a three-day work week, uh, which, of course, for many people, sounds like something incredibly joyous. Now, there's a UK startup called Tomorrow, and they aim to reduce the standard work week to three days within the next five years. Why can't they do it today? Uh, Utilising AI agents, or, or large language models, of course, uh, as uh, robotic personal assistants. Matt, this sounds right up your street, actually. Unlike traditional automation, tomorrow's agents, oh, that sounds great as well, uh, developed in collaboration with OpenAI, can make decisions within defined parameters, enhancing workplace productivity without replacing jobs. Uh, the founder, Ed Broussard, emphasizes the goal of working alongside real people to accelerate corporate efficiency up to eight times the current rate. They've already secured their first client, a Prem Fina, a British insurance firm, and plan to assemble a top-notch research and development team. Broussard envisions a future where AI and 
humans collaborate for increased productivity, contrary to what Elon Musk has said about AI replacing all jobs. I'm just curious as to why they went into insurance first. Uh, I'm, well, I imagine uh, that they're looking for a, a company with extensive integrated operations, but also a company that's uh, possibly willing to uh, invest quite heavily into the company itself. Mm -hmm. As we know, you know, insurance companies are major investors into technology startups. So that would seem to be quite a, a, a clever move in terms of a, an institutional client mm. uh, to, to start with. But I do find this story a little bit confusing because you're talking about a company that's saying it plans to do. These aren't tools that uh, they currently have and they're currently going to be deploying. Um, but we're already seeing AI-based tools. I mean, just with ChatGPT and this ability to build your own models, you can already do a lot of this for yourself or do it on a, on a company-wide right. basis. So I wonder what the role of this company will be given that we already have a lot of, um, albeit more fragmented tools that can already do it while this company is claiming that they're just going into research and development. Uh, and that's without noting that a lot of companies are already moving to three and four day mm. working weeks uh, based around employee satisfaction, um, a, a, a lot of things. But we all know that the majority of companies will not use this to pay staff the <laughs> same for doing three days. They are going to use it to, to cut down on headcount. Of course. Um, that's normal. That's what we see with any kind of technological um, evolution or, or revolution. They, mm -hmm. they do have an impact on, on headcounts. They do have an impact on the way companies are structured. That doesn't mean the end of work because typically we find that uh, other areas, new businesses, new commercial sectors open up to take advantage of that uh, no longer needed workforce. Obviously, that's not necessarily a, an equitable or, or balanced uh, way of redistributing those uh, resources. But yeah, I, I do find the, the kind of statement um, by tomorrow to be a little bit strange and more in lines with uh, the UK trying to uh, uh, promote itself as this uh, hub of artificial intelligence rather than uh, any sort of great impact that I think that, that mm. the company is likely to have long term. I mean, it's like we, we just just a few weeks ago when we were reading about and in fact looking at some of the stuff that OpenAI would, would, were releasing to the public that, you know, like the open AI hub where you can download these kind of, you know, assistance already, you know, it's really not that much of a stretch for, for somebody like me or you to just download one of these things and use it on a day to day basis. And that in, you know, increase our efficiency anyway. Well, yeah. And one of the things that we've uh, covered on, on Matt's blend a couple of times is this pivot from um, these kind of large language models to smaller language mm, models, mm. which use a lot less compute power, uh, which uh, can be stored and operated locally within organizations so they don't have to uh, reside on you know somebody else's uh, cloud, uh, but can achieve operations far more efficiently within a much more narrow mm. and specified uh, band of parameters. Mm. Okay, uh, time for us to move on. And um, th this is the time what I like. You see, when we do Matt Splained, you're the one that's 
constantly asking me questions. And now it gets to be, I get to turn around on the tables and I kind of like this a little bit. So let me ask you a question, Matt. I want to pose a question. How many Gmail accounts do you have? I'm not entirely sure is the uh, is the answer to that well i have all of my company ones which sit on um which sit on google servers yeah in terms of gmail accounts i think probably about three or four because okay. uh, uh as uh, regular listeners will know i don't subscribe to inbox zero therefore mm-hmm. i use different email accounts to sort different kinds of information um, and keep it separate from each other. Okay. So the reason I ask you that is is because Google will be deleting Gmail accounts next week. Uh, And what I mean is that not just all of them, of course, so don't panic, folks, don't panic. They'll be deleting inactive Gmail accounts and associated services. that, That includes, of course, Gmail inboxes, photos, calendars, contacts, YouTube videos, and Drive content. And this is starting... In just a few days on December the 1st. So just to give you some context, an inactive account is defined as one that's not been used for two years. So Google suggests that inactive accounts are at risk of compromise due to outdated or reused passwords and the lack of two-factor authentication. And to prevent deletion, you must engage in various activities like sending, reading emails, using your G Drive, watching YouTube videos, or using other Google services. So they'll send you a reminder to inactive account holders eight months before deletion, uh, prompting them to log in and keep their accounts active. So there you go. Do you think you have any inactive accounts? Uh, I don't personally, but um, being, how do I put this politely, um, being the techie person in a family, I do have various accounts for uh, other family members that uh, uh, help to keep them connected. So, um, yes, I will have to. Uh, I will have to check that those accounts are are still active because they're. Uh, I wouldn't want to. Uh, I wouldn't want the people concerned to lose control of them. He said diplomatically. I'm just thinking, you're just hopping around like you're on hot coals there or something. Yes. Now, um, okay. So just a quick one before we take. Uh, well, no, because no, I mean, again, it, it comes back to that same uh, idea about um, you know, inactive accounts can be hacked and and taken yeah. over. So yeah. obviously, I have to be a bit careful about what I say about those accounts, mm, mm. so that they themselves don't become targets. Mm, mm. Right. A quick one before we go into the break. Um, we, we've heard multiple times about different ways in which hackers and fishers are finding ways to get into your personal accounts. Of course, this does you know, refer back to the story we just said, but this is about how fishers are using QR codes uh, to help get into accounts. So what they're doing is they're using these things called uh, poison pixel squares, Uh and they use it to get past filters and into inboxes. So a report from the cybersecurity company, ReliaQuest, discovered a 51% increase in QR code attacks in September um, compared to the cumulative number from January to August of last year. So we know that the rise in QR code scams may be linked to the growing number of smartphones equipped with built-in QR code scanners or free scanning apps and, of course, menus and other things. 
So, but this email is typically short, suggesting that more information is on the way after a quick QR click. And once the phone scans the image, the end user can be sent to an imitation proxy site and any entered credentials lands in the hacker's hands. So this guy, Aaron Walton, uh, he's a threat intel analyst at the cybersecurity vendor Expel, has seen an escalation in QR code phishing along with struggles to keep uh, um, an eye on it. What do you know about this, Matt? Well, um Again, one of these uh, things, I mean, if you look at the kind of Malaysian context, um, we went from not really using QR codes to the pandemic hitting, and suddenly we were using QR codes for, for everything. everything. And, you know, it's just got to the point now, you go into a restaurant and they, they give mm. you a QR code rather than a menu. So we're used to just seeing a QR code and trusting it and clicking it and mm. going ahead. Now, I have a policy and I have... Uh, even even before reading this story, I don't use QR codes that are embedded mm. in emails. Uh, I don't click links in emails unless I'm sure where it's going. Mm. I tend to copy the link. Uh, if I'm not sure about it, I paste it to actually have a look at uh, where it's directing me before I put it into yeah. uh, a server. So if you do click on a link in an email, do double check the site that it's sending you to. Uh, so, for example, recently uh, I clicked on uh, a QR code in a restaurant and it sent me to a server in China. No. Uh, but it turns out that that's just where the, because it's a the, the, it's a Chinese restaurant and it's a, it's a chain from mainland China. <laughs> so, of course, their server is based in, in China. But most people wouldn't think to look to check you know, the, the location of the origin of mm -hmm. the site. So always be careful. Don't trust anything simply because you think it's genuine. Right. Double check everything. Double check everything. Simple as that. Right, we're going to take a short break. We've got three more stories to get through. Um, we've got stuff about uh, film photography, funnily enough. That's coming up. Uh, a little one about uh, where you'd pop up if you dug straight through the earth. This really does sound like a weird science story for Matt Splain, but I've pinched it to put on today's show. Uh, and then just a very quick mention of Elon Musk at the end of the show. But before that, a quick break. We've got some ads coming up and then some music from The Strokes. Don't go anywhere. I'll be back with Matt in just a few moments. Of course, you're tuned into Enterprise Biz Bytes Tech Tuesday here on BFM. 89.9 Building Fit Malaysians BFM 89.9 BFM 89.9, The Business Station. I'm Rich Bradbury, of course. I'm joined on the phone lines by Matt Armitage from Culture Pop. Say hello, Matt. Hi. There he nice is. to be back again. He's is, is, is not gone anywhere yet. Uh, folks, if you want to get in touch with me or Matt, get us via our U-Mobile WhatsApp number, 018-789-8899, and get us on X. We are at BFM Radio. A uh, couple of stories still left to go through on the show. Uh, one, I, I want to do the digging one, but I, I, I have to put it off yet because that, that's a, an interesting one. Uh, now, uh, Apparently, in a generative AI world, analog film photography is making a bit of a comeback. Matt, were you much of a, an analog film guy? No, I was never really an analog film guy, mostly because uh, I only started uh, sort of getting into photography after mm. digital cameras happened. Uh, and basically because I'm lazy. I'm just too <laughs> lazy to, to get film. I love your honesty up. today. I love it. Yeah. Oddly enough, when I was at college, and this is going back 
a substantial number of years. I did a night course on on uh, photography and, and how to develop, you know, film and one thing or another. And back then, I was thinking to myself. This is going to be a really, really expensive hobby, uh, not only because of the cost of lenses and then the cost of film and then the development stuff and all of that kind of stuff. And in my head, this is before digital cameras were really a thing, and I'm thinking to myself there must be a way of uh, – anyway, this was kind of me thinking about then. But there's an article out, and it, re- it reflects on this evolving nature of photography, particularly this shift from computational photography to generative AI photography. So – while the impressive capabilities of AI in enhancing images, uh, there are concerns about this kind of diminishing role of the photographer in the creative process. Not something new that we've been, you know, we've been discussing this for quite some time. So things like best take and magic editor, even in stuff like you know the Google Pixel Eight series, uh, exemplifies this trend. And even when you take a photograph with your iPhone or whatever competitive device that you're using there's a button that you know will beautify your picture right yeah the auto fix function but i think the um the magic editor and best take in the the google phones goes a stage further than that because you can actually take uh it'll create a composite for you so for example if you take a series of shots and in one shot one person's gurning in another shot somebody's got eyes closed you can actually then combine those pictures and have the best of all of those shots so you right. can have the one where everyone has the the best expressions on their faces or you can actually move people around and ai will fill in the gaps using the the composites of, mm-hmm. of all of the shots so that's a, a a step beyond what people can do with with iPhones, but then pretty much everything you can do with an Android phone is a step beyond what you can do with an iPhone. True. He said, somebody who's locked into uh, Apple's increasingly expensive ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, do, I do feel that, uh, again, it's overblown people saying that this will be the end of photography because we're seeing more and more people ditching their phones and going back to cameras, whether yep. they're analog or yep. or digital. Myself and included. Using, oh, precisely. And when you when you go out now, I mean, I was on um, I was on the the MRT for the first time in ages recently, and there were some kids, aged sort of sixteen or seventeen, with a DSLR, mm. posing and taking photos on the on the train just just for fun. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, people are coming back to this idea of using something that is maybe a little less instant. Um, and again, it sort of feeds into this idea of going back to analog and film cameras, but Mm. what isn't addressed, uh, because again, I was looking into this earlier this year, uh, and buying the film is now incredibly expensive, let alone getting it developed. I mean, you know, finding a place that will develop for you. Mm-hmm. But just buying the film can cost you, you know, hundreds of ringgit yeah. just to get a roll of film, especially if you want something that's a bit more mm-hmm. um, specialised and specialist. Mm. I mean, it's, it's interesting because part of this kind of uh, article refers to the the... the, the the uh, the resurgence and the increase uh, of um, cameras, analog camera sales, and they specifically cite 
Leica. Now, if anybody out there is familiar with Leica, you will know that Leica are not the cheapest of analog cameras. So it's not just that they're making a resurgence, it's that people are actively going out there and buying a specific brand, you know, who are, they're not a beginner brand, they're not your base model brand. These are like top tier analog cameras that people are choosing to invest in these things again, right? Absolutely. I mean, a, a few years ago, I bought uh, because I wanted something like a like, uh, like a rangefinder. Mm. It's still digital, um, so I bought uh, a Sony camera, which was genuinely one of the most expensive things I've ever bought in my life, <laughs> uh, and it was still not even half of what a Leica costs. Yeah. So to yeah. to see this kind of interest. Um, and to the the fact, I, I think the, the the point they made was that uh, uh, they're now selling more analog cameras than they are um, the the digital variants. So when you consider the the prices of those those cameras, yeah, it is a substantial trend, and mm. it does show that people are interested in investing a lot of money into mm. having this non instant uh, portrayal mm. of uh, of the world that they see. What I wouldn't give for a Leica rangefinder, Matt. But anyway, enough about that. On to the story that I've been most excited about uh, for today's show. Um, you might not be as excited about it as I am, folks, listening at home, but there is a map out there that shows where you'd pop up if you dug straight through the earth. Um, so <laughs> it's called antipodesmap.com, and it allows you to discover what's on the opposite side of the earth from any chosen location. It dispels this common misconception, revealing that if you were to dig straight through the earth from the USA, you wouldn't end up in China, for, for example. Instead, it varies based on the starting point, of course. So the map displays the antipodal point with a person's head popping out of the opposite location. For instance, people in the UK would find themselves off the coast of New Zealand, and Australians would end up in the North Atlantic. Uh, it also provides a list of antipode cities with examples like Christchurch and Akaruna or Madrid or Weber. And it offers this fun and convenient way to explore what's on the other side of the earth without doing any actually uh, actual digging. Did you manage to have a play with it yet? I did. Uh, you know, the, if they'd had something like this when I was a kid, I mean, this is just the best thing ever. <laughs> now, uh, a lot of people will probably be disappointed uh, by the fact that uh, when you go from most locations, you end up in the sea. But then you do have to remember that our planet is two-thirds water. So the likelihood is that it is water yeah. on the other side of wherever you are. Did you check Kuala Lumpur? I haven't done that, but I'm, I'm trying to do it now, but I'm getting uh, so many pop-ups on my website. Yeah, I I, I did it. And it's um, just the, the it's uh, very close to the coast in Ecuador. Oh, so is it? We are, yeah, so we are one of the few places, Kuala Lumpur is one of the few places that has an analogue on land, whereas most people are in the middle of the sea. The entire continent of Australia is in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean between <laughs> Europe and uh, between Europe and the United States. But that gives you a, a sense of the scale of the oceans, because often when we look at um, maps of the world, because that's a distorted picture, mm. it's not actually, you know, by area or by size. Mm. It kind of diminishes the scale of the seas so this is a really good tool to show you just how vast the oceans are that yeah. entire continents like north america 
just disappear into the Pacific Ocean. Just to, for clarification, if you dug directly down from KL, we would end up in Morono, Santiago in Ecuador. That's where we would be. So there you go. Now, okay, final story of the day. We've got two minutes left. And, of course, um, we haven't mentioned – well, we've mentioned him, but we haven't spoken too much about him. Elon Musk, of course. Um, apparently, he's bringing headlines back to X, 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 <laughs> not XXX, just X. Uh, it, it, he's going to be doing it. He aimed to keep users on the site rather than redirecting to external news sources. Uh, of course, um, you had to add your own text when sharing news articles without context. Um, and then, what apparently he's going to be doing is – overlaying um, uh, article images over these new headlines. What do you know about this then, Matt? Well, I, I know that this isn't a story. Basically, he did something stupid a few months ago. It stopped people being able to use the site, and now they've put it back to, or they're putting it back to the way it was before, albeit with a few tweaks. So I, it's, it's, less of a, it's less of a story than a, well... We knew he was going to do it. It was just a question of when, because, you know, having having links that are just random pictures doesn't make any kind of mm. sense. But it just shows the level to which the, the company is now, uh, you know, just a, a kind of a, a plaything of his imagination. Oh, dear, oh, dear. That's it. Two steps forward, one step back is uh, what seems to be happening with, with Elon Musk right now. Now. Well, yeah, well, if we could just go back to what it was, if we could take half a dozen steps backwards, Twitter would be a lot better yeah. than it is now. Yeah, yeah, yes, indeed. Right, that's all the time that myself and Matt have for this week's episode of Tech Tuesday. Of course, you can catch us both again, though, on Friday on Matt's Plane. Do we know what we're talking about this week, Matt? Uh, not entirely, but it probably will have something to uh, to do with uh, either the future of work or um, how it intersects with AI. Lovely. Now, don't go anywhere then, of course, because coming up after the one o'clock news, it is the Breakfast Grill replay. Uh, PHS Automotive Malaysia is the official distributor of Audi in Malaysia since 2022 and is part of the uh, Volkswagen Group. The managing director, Daniel Bostanajev, shared with us on how the brands are handling increasing competition, the impact of luxury tax next year and electrification efforts. That's all coming up after the one o'clock news. I want to thank Matt. Uh, and uh, I'll see you on, on Friday, Matt. Always a, a pleasure to be here. And uh, Richard delights in trying to get me to uh, engage in uh, uh, small talk, which he knows I'm terrible <laughs> at. <laughs> right. We'll speak to you again on Friday. And of course, tomorrow we'll be back with Enterprise Biz Bites. This has been Enterprise Biz Bites here on BFM 89.9, the business station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.